Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Scraps. This is your podcast where we, on your behalf, seek to understand the journey of the people in science. Unlike other science or technology podcasts, we care less about the nitty-gritties of science. We believe that this is best left to the conferences and publications. We want to go where no one else ever has and present to you the stories that you normally don't get to hear and appreciate but are always itching to do so. So see scraps as a way to soothe that incurable itch in your brain. We present stories with science as the backdrop so that the layman and the scientifically capable can all be on a level playing field. And we quite literally mean any field of science. As always, we rely on you, our dear listeners, to spread the word for us. So please do share the news and information you heard on the show with your friends and family. If you're not shy, please do tag us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Our Twitter ID is at Podcast Scraps. And on LinkedIn, you will find us by typing in Scraps in the search box. Your feedback will be much appreciated. Think about the following. The human heart beats 100,000 times a day and pumps 7,500 liters of blood. That's almost equivalent to 2.5 billion heartbeats and 200 million liters of blood in one's lifetime. The blood vessels in the body of an average human being can go around the earth two and a half times. The blood capillaries measure 80 microns in diameter and it takes 50 capillaries to equal the diameter of one human hair. Forget the nerdy part. If you love movies, the last time I checked IMDb, heart or blood or the combination thereof occurs 10,877 times. That's roughly one-third of all movies ever made in Hollywood. If you look at categorization, and trust me, I truly did this to see if any of this data has changed since I last saw it, close to half of the 10,877 movies were dramas or thrillers. Okay, if you think this is an anomaly, Shakespeare refers to the heart roughly 1,200 times in 37 place. And Bible has 922 references to heart. So heart has always been called as the seat of emotion. But why am I saying all of this? It is because in an age where everything is about medical technology, devices, transcatheter valves, robotic surgery, artificial intelligence, machine learning, etc., 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 we forget the history of the area and how it all came about. We forget the teachers and the knowledge that they imparted, and more importantly, how such knowledge was imparted. If you're thinking, are you nuts? Why am I listening to a podcast with such weird factoids? 
you're not alone. My co-host Jojo is thinking exactly the same. This episode that you're about to listen to is a very personal episode for me. It's personal because the interactions with our guest today made me the person I am today, personally and professionally. Our guest today taught me one valuable lesson in life. Always be a good person before being a good scientist. Yet his pedigree and the contribution to the area of science that he has worked in is only known to a select few in the current day and age. This is my attempt to bring his story to light and if I could write his biography, I sure will. This was a man who once delivered a magical talk once and I was so proudly proclaimed to my daughter ever since she could realize anything uh, that this talk inspired me. In return, it became an inspiration for her and she now wishes to be a veterinarian because of that. Because when she was small, she thought that being a veterinarian was like being a wizard. Years have gone by and her ambitions has only gotten stronger. If you think why I'm going on and on about this talk title, let me read it out. The talk title went like this. Slightly modified giraffes would make great fighter pilots and bats great cardiologists. And please give me a heart that's part guinea pig, part spider, part rat and part goat. Or it's lucky we are so smart. I dare anyone, literally anyone, to provide me a better title than this. We're going to talk about his journey in science, his journey in being able to record the cardiac electrical activity from a shrew to a whale, his experience in working with a doyen of physiology that almost every first-year medical student learns, called as the Vigors diagram, and many more. You could call him a veterinary cardiologist, an author, a key opinion leader, or to me, he will always be known as simply the best human being I've ever known or come across. Sit back, buckle up, and enjoy your conversation with the incomparable Dr. Bob Hamlin, or as many of his students would call him out of reverence, Dr. Hamlin. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hamlin. Thanks. Thanks very much for the kind introduction. But I must uh, uh, confess my anthem, which is not too erudite, but I'm called often wrong, but never in doubt. So uh, you should always be cautious with what you about what you hear. I think that's a, a saying that I'll probably adopt and apply to myself because I, I, I share your confidence. Um, but I, I do want to ask you about this talk title that Arun referenced with the, the fighter pilot giraffes, the cardiologist bats and hearts uh, com- combined of guinea pigs, spider, and goats, and rats. It's it's so rare that we um, inject a little bit of humor in, tem- in some of the scientific talk titles and, and papers that are presented. How did you come up with this, this title? Well, as a, a comparative cardiologist, I'm interested in the cardiovascular systems of many species. And as a, as a safety pharmacologist, I'm interested interested in studying uh, animals as preclinical uh, 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 for, for preclinical reasons. Before a drug gets to a, a clinical trial, it's got to go through rigorous animal testing. And uh, people always ask me, well, wh- what animal should I use? 
and uh, something I learned from a great, great safety toxicologist is uh, don't do something just because it's always been done. Don't just don't do something just because others do it. Uh, uh, do something because there's a reasonable expectation that it will mimic the situation for which you want to for which you want to use. That is for humans. So I, I've looked at all the animals as a, as a veterinary cardiologist, uh, treated them all for heart, many different species for heart disease, and they are so very different and so very different from humans. I wonder, well, which is the best one? And the answer is one is the best one for one thing, another is the best thing for something else, and nothing is perfect. In fact, humans are not good models for humans because you know how variable we are. So uh, uh, I looked at, at these animals and I figure, why does a giraffe live so long? Why does it do so well? Now it lives to 600 million heartbeats. All uh, animals do that except humans, which are about, uh, uh, as, as Arun said, 2.9 billion heartbeats. Uh, and uh, cats, 1.2 billion, but all the other animals, oh, sorry, 600, yeah, 600 million. And so the, what, the question is, why is that? And, uh, and, I, and, and then I look at a giraffe, and you've, I'm sure you've all had this experience. You lay down comfortably, and then you jump up. And if you're at all tall, you may get lightheaded or even pass out. Why? Because the blood that's destined to the heart, pools in the limbs and the buttocks, doesn't get back to the heart. The heart doesn't have enough blood to pump to the brain, and so you get lightheaded, lightheaded or faint. Well, how in the world is a giraffe with a long neck, 19 feet tall, how in the world does it go from drinking water uh, six feet or eight feet below the level of the heart to jump up and look out when it hears something in the distance, or eat leaves from the top of a tree 19 feet above the level heart. How in the world does a draft do that without passing out? And the answer is very, very simple. Uh, you see, when you stand up, blood pools in your legs and buttocks. That's because your skin is soft, supple, uh, and you don't have terribly long legs. But a draft gets by with it because he's got, even though he's got terribly long legs and has this big distance between the heart and the brain, or the heart and the water he's drinking from, from a brook, the reason the, the, the draft gets by with it is that he has very, very tight skin. So whereas when you stand up, blood pools in your legs, when the draft stands up, it can't pull in the legs because even though they're so long and could tolerate blood, the skin is very thick and tough, and so it can't pull. And so he would make a great fighter pilot because you know when an airplane pilot pulls out of a dive, uh, he comes up, but the blood keeps going to his legs and buttocks, and the fighter pilot blacks out, and maybe even passes out. And a giraffe would never do that because, you see, he can't pool blood down there, so he would be a wonderful fighter pilot. He'd be able to pull out of dives without worrying about passing out. That means he could fly any airplane, no matter how advanced it is. Uh, and so, uh, uh, very, very nice. Now you realize there's some problem with that, because even though he would be a great, great fighter pilot, could pull out of dives, uh, he's not terribly smart, the giraffe, compared to us. 
And so uh, 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 it, it would suit him to be a, a fighter pilot in one sense, but but not but not not totally. So uh, it's kind of a tongue in cheek. He'd be, be a good be a good fighter pilot. And you know that then there are other animals like like spiders. Why would I like a, a heart like a spider? Well, uh, uh, you all know there's two types of heart failure. A heart failure uh, caused by abnormal systolic function, it doesn't beat forcefully enough, or diastolic function, it doesn't fill adequately. And uh, you know that the filling requires a pressure rating. That when your and my and your dog and your mouse's ventricle fills, it fills because it relaxes and the pressure in the veins is great enough to push blood back to the heart. And so the heart fills and contracts. But one of the most common causes of heart failure is not abnormal systolic function, but abnormal diastolic function. The heart doesn't fill well. So why would in the world would I want a spider heart? Because a spider heart is unique in that it has a single muscle. It contracts in systole, pumping blood out. But how does it fill? It fills because it's got like skeletal muscles that go from the outside surface of the heart, the pericardium, to the exoskeleton, which actually suck the heart open. So it doesn't have, it can never get diastolic dysfunction. Now, 40 to 60% of us who die of heart failure die because of abnormal diastolic function. No spider would because it can't get diastolic function because it's got all these extra muscles pulling the heart open. So you see why I would love to have a heart like that. And, and lastly, uh, I, I guess I should get to why would I want to have uh, 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 the, the properties of a, of, a, of, a, of a bat? You know, a bat echolocates. It loves to eat mosquitoes, and it loves to eat mosquitoes whose noses are full of blood. And so the bat has the ability to identify the position of the bat by echolocating. It makes a squeak, 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 and the re recording comes, and the, the, the uh, sonar comes back. And by that, he knows how far away the bat is. But then how in the world does the bat, does, does the bat know that the mosquito's nose is full of blood? Well, not only does the bat go squeak, 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 but it goes squeak, 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 real high squeak, which allows him to get great sensitivity in, 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 uh, in, the, in the sonar, and he can tell how much blood is in, the, is in the mosquito's nose. So you see a bat, and this can be a blind bat, it doesn't have to see, it echolocates. And wouldn't it be nice? Now, I say, well, what does that have to do with human cardiology? Well, what is the most advanced, elegant tool in cardiology today? It's echocardiography. And so what does a cardiologist do? He puts a probe on the chest that puts in a sound wave and it's reflected back and you get an image of the heart. You can even watch the heart beat and you can watch the blood go through because it hits red blood cells and there's a Doppler shift which tells you how fast the red blood cells are moving. So the bat could do that just beautifully by just sitting on a person's chest. And you see, he wouldn't need to have an echocardiogram. He is the echocardiogram. And he has the ability by using a Fourier analysis to interpret the reflected waves and get all there is to know.
Now you realize uh, a bat would not be a very good cardiologist. Why? Because he would scare people. You, you wouldn't want a bat sitting on your chest. Um, furthermore, because hospitals have beds pretty close together, uh, he wouldn't be able to go from bed to bed because bats have to run and taxi to take off or fall out of a tree. So since the draft couldn't, since since the, the bat couldn't do that, uh, he really wouldn't be a good cardiologist. But at least if if we had the bat's ability to echolocate and didn't scare our patients and could go from patient to patient, we would be great. Uh, we would break, be be great cardiologists if we had if we had certain things of a bat. And so there, there's each, we could spend the rest of the rest of the hour talking about this. But you see how unique these animals are. They suit them to survive. And uh, if we had those potentials, uh, we would survive a lot longer than even we do. But you say, well, wait a minute. Why do you say that? We live to 80 years, and these animals live to one, two, three, or maybe 10 years. So we're better than they are. Not because we're physically better, but because what's between our brains. So whereas the bat and giraffe and spider survive for good physical reasons, we survive because we're so smart. So when we, instead of getting sick, we take vaccines. When we do get sick, we take antibiotics, all invented because of our wisdom. Bats, giraffes, spiders can't do that. So thank goodness that you're human and thank goodness that you're smart. Well, and, and let's not forget that the bats are getting a pretty bad rap right now. But I, I'd like to ask you then, why the guinea pig and the goat? Where do they fit in? That, also a very good reason. Let, let's, talk about, let's talk about a guinea pig. Do you know what one of the most common causes of death from heart disease in humans is? It's coronary artery disease. Now, we have three major coronary arteries that go to various regions of the heart. Okay? If one of them plugs up completely, you're in bad shape if it's a big one. If two of them coagulate, you're dead, okay? So what somebody did for a guinea pig one time is they ligated a coronary artery, one of them. Nothing happened to the guinea pig. They said, well, that's funny. So then they ligated two. Nothing happened to the guinea pig. So you can ligate any two major coronary arteries in a guinea pig and they survive. Don't try that to a human being because you would die for sure or to any other animal. Why does the guinea pig survive? Because it has lovely collateral channels among the three major coronary arteries. So if one plugs up or even two plug up, blood goes to the heart from the collateral channels from the coronary artery that doesn't plug up. So if I were a guinea pig and had coronary arteries like a guinea pig, I would probably never die of a heart attack. So that, that's very nice. So, so, so every every animal has its advantage. Now, why in the world would I want a heart part goat? Okay, you understand that the heart is a muscle. It beats because of an electrical shock wave that goes through the muscle, and the shock wave goes over fibers that conduct very rapidly. And if we don't have, or and we have uh, three major groups of fibers, if one of those groups plug up then the region of the heart that uh, is nourished by those fibers that plug up is going to not beat well, it's maybe die. But a sheep or goat have collateral 
Purkinje fiber, these magic conducting fibers that go the entire distance of the heart. So we die of, say, a conduction disturbance. You heard a bundle branch block. They can't get it because if they would get a bundle branch block, the impulse would feed the region of the heart that's blocked over a collateral channel. So it would be wonderful if we had a goat like goats don't die of coronary artery disease. Very nice. So every one of these animals should outlive us. But why don't they? Because they don't get vaccines. That was a little tongue-in-cheek humor, Dr. Hamlin. Thank you, Dr. Hamlin, for such an eloquent explanation. I don't think there is any other person in this world who could give such clear and beautiful explanations for how the animal kingdom around us is so much better than us, or in your words, uh, is just so lucky that we are smart. Um, I want to go back to one specific point in your life, which is um, that many people may not know this. You trained, um, you got your master's at the Western Reserve University in Cleveland, as it was known back then. Now it's called Case Western Reserve University. And more importantly, you actually trained under one of the most amazing physiologists that the world has ever known. Um, And the physiologist was so instrumental and so influential that people actually read his work, the most simplistic representation of everything that the heart does and happens during one single heartbeat. Um, from the electrical activity to the contractile activity to the force, the measurement of force within the blood vessel as well as within the heart, and its correlation to heart sounds that a clinician might actually use or might decipher from using a stethoscope. You actually trained with him. Um, What I want to ask you first is how did you get into his lab? It must be a fascinating story. Tell us a bit about that. Okay, so how I, how I got uh, uh, in, in with Dr. Wiggers. Okay, I wanted to be a, a, a veterinarian, and I've got, in biology, I got very interested in cardiology. So I was very interested in veterinary cardiology, and uh, so I got a job at the animal hospital that provided dogs for Dr. Wiggers' research. And, uh, and, and uh, I carried dogs to his lab, helped help the dogs get set up. And uh, I was very interested in his research and I would stay there hour after hour and watch him work. And uh, he, I guess he, he, he kind of liked me. So, so he and uh, at the time, Bob Byrne and Matt Levy were his two uh, really, really great students. And so I, I kind of uh, got in, in, interested in him and uh, helped him ma- make the recordings and uh, so I originally took care of his took care of his dogs, and then I became interested in his in his work. And uh, he had pictures of the Wiggers diagram. It wasn't called a Wiggers diagram; it was called a diagram. And uh, and we, we would review it and study it. And he, Herman Hellerstein, and and Byrne and Levy and I had had great times. And learning it was so fantastic learning from. The devices he used were very simple, but state of the art, and, uh, and they were all mechanical, very, very little electrophysiological, except the string galvanometer. So uh, we recorded electrocardiograms on the string galvanometer, but pressures we, we recorded by putting tubes in the heart, and the tubes had fluid in them, 
and on the one end of the flu, the one end was in the heart, the other end was outside of the heart, and there was a piece of rubber over the that end with a mirror, and we shined a, a light on that mirror, and when the pressure in the tube went up, it bowed the mirror out a little, deflected the light difference, and the recorder was actually a piece of paper on the wall that was moved around the wall and actually burnt the image of the pressure pulse. Uh, on the Very amazing. Well, you say, before that, people used uh, uh, other inf kind of primitive devices. And I keep telling people, if I knew all the physiology that was taught by that te simple technology, I would be the most brilliant physiologist in the world. And, and it's... And, course, Wiggers knew it, and, the, and many of his students ended up knowing it. But it's very, very interesting. And uh, and just just to, to uh, I actually have his first textbook. He, uh, he he was getting rid of some of his books, so he gave me his first textbook, initialed, and uh, it was the Bible of uh, of cardiovascular physiology. And if you're ever getting rid of that textbook, I I I will make sure that I will come get it. Um, you volunteer as tribute? <laughs> yeah, I hope I can find it because I loaned it to so many people and I'm not sure if I got it back, but uh, I, 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 I'm almost sure it's in my library. That's that's fantastic. Um, and I think the other uh, physiologist that you're referring to, Matt Levy, if people have actually, um, especially the students in the US, they all have Bernard Levy textbook. of Absolutely. So Matt Levy was another giant in the field of physiology who actually wrote a physiology textbook so particularly with neuro neuro neural control of the heart i mean you a dynamite yeah. person dynamite person yeah absolutely that that is fantastic so from there you actually um moved down south uh, the interstate 71 to columbus ohio uh, from cleveland and you did your degree in in veterinary medicine and 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 cardiology um, and what is amazing through that, that whole journey is the number of people that you have trained, uh, both clinically as well as in your research lab over the years, which I think is probably kind of your research experience is probably older than, than my, my dad. Um, so it, it just speaks to the volume of people that, that you've actually trained and how prolific you've been over the years across the world, uh, even back then. But there was always one class that you always taught, Dr. Hamlin, and this I'm just going to give you my reflection and I'm going to kind of uh, let you take this, right? There was one class that you taught. It was at 7 a.m. in the morning uh, in, in the veterinary school. And that class was to second-year veterinary students and it was not just the 120, 130 odd class of veterinary class that attended that 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 lecture um, or that course. It was also the medical students. It was also the physiology students. It was also the dental students. It almost had, I think, at one particular point of time, the year that I attended, maybe that was the year where there was less number of students. I've heard there were more students in your class. There were 270 students in that one class that year. Yet, you had the capability to deliver a lecture three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 7 a.m. in the morning, and you did not have a single student even kind of 
did not even skip that that lecture or any one of those lectures during the course how the hell did you actually do it dr hamlin because i've not seen any teacher in my life who has actually been that prolific lecture after lecture and still kept the students hooked one of one of wigger's students was a fellow named herman hellerstein herman hellerstein became a clinical cardiologist in years before they were board certified and he was very interested in electrocardiography and not only that but he was the most dynamic exciting person who said the most outrageous clever things and brilliant things that you'd ever had and i kind of kind of mimic him for example he said he said uh, when people said boy electrocardiography is really tough he said a well trained ape can read an electrocardiogram i mean the, stuff like that i mean and he was just a super exciting person and i and i tried to i tried to uh, tried to follow him and uh it was and and fortunately the students i've been I, the students i've been fortunate enough to have have all been just dynamite folks i mean two the two smart things i did in my life is i studied under the greatest people and secondly i had great students under me it was very very fortunate i i'm going to have to jump in and say because i i'm nobody ever accused me of being a science student but your delivery and your engagement is infectious so i i think it, you know not just having great students within the field but you present it in such a way that it's fascinating um but i do want to move a little bit on to another area where you're very well accomplished and how did you get involved with drug safety because that seems like a deviation from from the history we've heard so far and and you not only got involved in it but you were a well sought after name for the pharmaceutical uh, for the pharmaceutical companies it's a little different twist on drug safety you know there's a discipline called toxicology where you study the effect of drugs at super high doses and you know you give strychnine to a rat and it dies uh you do this and that to other animals and they die something happens to a human and they and they die but i was interested in because the industry became interested in not toxicology produced by super high doses but by toxicity that occurs at therapeutic doses or slightly above and that's the definition of safety pharmacology safety pharmacology is stu studying the safety of drugs at usual therapeutic or slightly higher than therapeutic doses in contradistinction to toxicology now how did that happen very interestingly in about in the 1980s uh young women particularly young women between 35 and 55 uh who had stuffy noses uh and who ended up liking grapefruit juice died suddenly and it and that sudden death was terrible because you wouldn't you wouldn't expect that to have happened I, I, okay please tell me there's a happy ending because i frequently have a stuffy happy. nose and i love grapefruit juice a very happy ending a very happy ending so so uh a bunch of folks Dan Roden and some others thought that maybe there's some electrocardiographic precursor and a fellow named Desartan from France uh, actually proved it that 
these women, and they were women because women have some electrocardiographic difference than men, uh, this, because women lack this one particular uh, enzyme system. Uh, they got they they lack they, they lack the ability to metabolize these drugs that are used for stuffy noses. Now we thought it was only stuffy noses, but now we know it's just about every drug. And so every drug before it gets to human clinical trials is tested to see if it prolongs one particular section of the electrocardiogram. And now we know that we can find it out and no drug ever gets on the market without being explored that way. So whereas people used to die from this arrhythmia called torsade de plant, uh, it's much, much less common because drugs are all tested that, that, uh, are, and are marketed that don't affect the ion channels that result in this. So you can take drugs with, without worry about death. And let me tell you a funny story. I was appointed to an to an, uh, uh, an FDA committee to invest investigate this so, sudden death in people who shouldn't have died. Okay, and uh, we had these electrophysiology lectures, and then we took a break in the morning. What do they serve? Grapefruit juice. And I thought, that, well, how funny! And that was before it was known that grapefruit juice interfered with the meta metabol metabolism uh, of these drugs. Very, very interesting how things happen coincidentally. <clears throat> so I, I think the what Dr. Hamlin is trying to say there is that it interferes with the metabolism of the drug. So therefore, the concentration of the drug remains high in the system when in, in males, um, the, or would have been metabolized or degraded in the system. So therefore, it the prolongation of, of the concentration presence in the blood leads to the side effect. And Dr. Hamlin actually referred to Torsad. And it would be a heresy to actually, uh, if I did the description of Torsad. Dr. Hamlin, what exactly does Torsad mean? Well, Torsad means twisting on the point because Desartan, who named it, the French cardiologist, because he had a patient who developed an electrocardiogram and then died in the electrocardiogram. Uh, if you look at a, at, a, at a ballerina, she gets up on her point and twists around. And the electrocardiographic pattern that precedes uh, torsade, uh, that, uh, that, that precedes death when you get torsade, looks where the QRS complex, one portion of the electrocardiogram, is first positive and then twists through zero and goes to negative. And Desertan thought that was a ballerina twisting on a, on a point. Very, very interesting. Uh, incidentally, it happens to men as well, but slightly more, more common to women. And one of, one of the three of us talking now is a true expert on this. And it's not maybe Jojo, but it's not me. It's Arun, because Arun knows more about those ion channels and how to measure their physiology than, than anybody you know. So... I've never, I've never seen anybody make a room blush. This is this is beautiful. I wish people could see their video recording because he's blushing. I had to take up a challenge when I started grad school, and I think my advisor also knows about this. Dr. Hamlin was on my on my dissertation committee, uh, and I worked in his lab 
almost for every single day of my of my graduate school and i was basically i, I thought to myself if i were to talk to dr hamlin who knows so much then i need to really understand things in a much better way such that i if i one day can actually educate dr hamlin on one or at least two of those things then i'm ready to graduate so that was a gauntlet that i threw myself and i think i've i've it, it only makes training as dr hamlin said training with the right people and the right people and the smart people i think it just it just makes you more smarter than uh, than i actually was and i think it just uh, thanks to you dr hamlin i i had one of the most productive graduate careers at the time but anyway i think we should skip my part and my contribution of uh, to, to to this but yes granted and thank you so much for the appreciation on that but do you want to give us an example uh, i think this is a very very important so the first thing is is the correlation to anything that we would normally take and that's why your pharmacist would actually tell you do not take this drug with the grapefruit juice and or do not drink it that came comes from that part and we also had one of our earlier guests on the podcast kit parker mentioned dan roden and the cast trial uh, so it's the same kind of correlation dr dr hamlin is talking about here as well so give us a couple of examples where um you where you almost changed the destiny of that particular molecule that was in in development uh, and you actually brought back a dead molecule or basically killed a, what was thought to be a good molecule by a pharmaceutical company let's go both ways uh you can this is this was an interesting story we have a, a CRO contract research, research organization that tests drugs for any liability that that they, that they might have for a clinical trial and uh and and so uh we got we got into this because uh uh it was not a common event but it was but because it resulted in death in people who were otherwise healthy or just had stuffy nose it was a very 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 bothersome event and so uh uh there was a drug that was being developed for treating a type of cancer for which there was no no therapy and uh it was very efficacious in animals that had that that, that had that disease but it couldn't go into human trials unless it was first tested to see if it produces other effects and it went to a lab that that investigated it and found that uh in pigs it caused death at very low levels and because of that the company was going to kill the drug not market it so the director of, of safety of that company was an ex student of mine and he said bob would i take a look at the at the data and i was a little unhappy that the fact that these pigs started the study with blood pressures that were terribly low so they were for some reason were either not healthy pigs or the experimental preparation was not good and when they gave them the drug the drug killed the pigs and so you know i said you know i'm just not sure of it send me a little of the drug so he sent me the drug and we repeated those studies in pigs and dogs that had normal blood pressures and they had no toxicity at all 
And so as a result of that, the drug which was marked for being killed uh, was one of the only drugs used to, to, to treat this certain type of cancer. And that, that's why uh, we, we feel about our CRO, very proud that, that we use that as an example. Another, another interesting study. In heart failure, you get wet lungs, pulmonary congestion, pulmonary edema. And it's caused usually by heart disease that makes the pressure in the left atrium elevate. And uh, the pressure in the left atrium elevates. That means the pressure in the pulmonary veins going into the left atrium elevates. And that causes pulmonary edema. And you literally drown. So somebody came to me with a very ridiculous idea. He said, why don't you try this? By the way, for anybody who knows Dr. Hamlin, Hamlin, Dr. Hamlin's way of saying ridiculous idea is the most angry that you would ever get. Uh, so that, 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 that is the, Dr. Hamlin's definition of profanity. Uh, so if he says ridiculous, yeah. you should be using other superlatives. But sorry, Dr. Hamlin, go on. Yeah. yeah. So, so we, we put this, and this was such a simple device. You put it in the wall between the left and right atrium. And when the pressure goes high in the left atrium because the heart's failing, instead of the blood backing up into the lungs, it shunts through this, the, the, the valve in the, in, the, in the septum to the right atrium and then go, ends up going through the lungs but uh, doesn't raise the pressure in the lungs. It increases the flow but doesn't raise the pressure. And so the pressure in the lungs falls. Edema doesn't form. The patient doesn't get sick or is sick, gets better. And this valve, this little, little, little valve is curative. I said, who in the world would think that would work? And it worked. And so you never know. You never know unless you try something. Something may sound ridiculous because I wasn't smart enough to appreciate that it wasn't ridiculous and it was ended up being life-saving. Very amazing. That's why nothing should be, should be, uh, should be rejected out of hand. Everything deserves a, deserves a shot. And it's not just the pharmaceutical companies that you have kind of helped over the years, uh, Dr. Hamlin. Um, it's also the various medical device companies, especially the many people who have worked on the commercialization or some, I know a lot of engineers who kind of cut their teeth on the early engineering of the cardiac rhythm uh, management devices, like the dual chamber pacemakers, the CRTs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You were also one of the first people who actually tested some of these devices. So basically the history of, of, cardiology and medical devices in in cardiology um, basically has run through your laboratory at Ohio State at some point of time from at least one or more of the of the medical device companies is that correct that, that is true but 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 the way it came by was kind of interesting also it came through Carl Wigger's lab when, when I was uh, just really a student watching. Uh, One of the worst things that happens that kills people from heart disease is ventricular fibrillation, in which instead of the heart beating coordinatedly, wiggles like a bag of worms. 
that's known as ventricular fibrillation. And uh, Claude Beck and Carl Wiggers got the idea, maybe when the heart fibrillates, if you delivered a big shock to it by opening up the chest, you would shock all the fibers simultaneously and they would all recover synchronously and the heart would become a coordinated beat again. And, uh, and that was one of the first start, first beginnings of, re, of really pacemakers. Then, of course, people, uh, again, th- through people, in, not only in Wigger's lab, but Zal and a bunch of other very important people, they, one of the problem is the ignition system of the heart uh, fails. The SA node, which is the captain, it drives all the fibers to contract ultimately, gets sick, fails to discharge, and the heart stops. And so the, how do you get it started? Maybe hit it, maybe inject epinephrine, or maybe you could take two wires and put them in where the, right near where the SA node, thread it through the jugular vein or femoral vein to the SA node and actually shock the SA node instead of waiting for the SA node to shock itself. And so uh, many companies developed instruments that called pacemakers that are little batteries that are inserted under the in the chest and have wires coming into various regions of the heart that shock these regions of the heart. And there's now so many intelligent uh, uh, in- instruments that will will drive the heart that uh, it's and a lot of them came through not not only our lab but a lot of labs do this. So we worked at it, but uh, we can't take credit for uh, e- even being a uh, uh, monumental. So I have a question with with the notion of, of you learn that every idea at least needs it to be heard, if not vetted, and and your your role in in the development of the pacemaker. What do you think is going to be the next coolest device that's coming up? Wow, that, that that's a fascinating question. Uh, I think that there will probably be, and people are working on it now, not artificial hearts made out of plastics and, and metals, but artificial hearts made out of myocardial cells that are genetically engineered that will actually be real hearts and they will have the same genetic properties uh, of, of, of the various hearts. We all have gen- different genetic properties. And, and I, I firmly believe that in years to come, there will be those devices that will be uh, automatic and, and real and constructed by 3D printing, for example. Uh, but, but there are so many clever pacemakers being developed. For example, uh, the first pacemaker put in was a fixed rate pacemaker. Uh, It discharged at uh, 100 times a minute, which is okay for you. But when you go to sleep, it should go down to 50. And when you get excited and active, it should go up to 140. And now they've got pacemakers that are synchronized with the activity that they should serve. And they are genius. 
they've got defibrillators. You know, when, when you get ventricular fibrillation, you hit it with a shock. Well, their their pacemakers that that shock at the right times and the right places that are just just brilliant. And these are a consequence of uh, brilliant engineers joining with physiologists and cardiologists. That's that's really interesting because I'm seeing some of the same developments in DBS, where the deep brain stimulation is responsive to the awake state, the resting state, the active state. So it's it's interesting that that's on a parallel track. Absolutely, absolutely, and they, and they're going to be controlled by measurements that are made um, that then feed back to the uh, to the system that's driving the heart, and uh, everything will be synced just perfectly. The next level of echolocation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Dr. Hamlin, I think there is also, from my point of view uh, or ref- personal reflection, there was one place all of the various kind of training that I undertook in your laboratory and, and also of my advisors, Dr. Carnes's laboratory, all came together. Um, and it just speaks to how Dr. Hamlin mentioned a cancer drug and also hay fever medicines, et cetera, that where the field of safety pharmacology kind of originated from. As in the pharmaceutical area, as things get more sophisticated, um, in one of the earlier episodes, I kind of made a really bad joke about epigenetics, about if you look like your father, it's genetics. If you look like your neighbor, it's epigenetic because of the control of your external environment and how you are, et cetera. But those bad jokes apart, I think one place where it all came together, and it's important for people to kind of appreciate how this field of of safety pharmacology actually works, is there are drugs right now which are epigenetic modulators that are being developed by various companies. For the company that I work for, um, it is it was actually one of the most seminal molecules where the pathways and the first molecule was all published in Nature, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. It was developed for a cardiovascular indication, and then it was repurposed afterwards for an oncology indication um, for midline carcinoma, which for which there are no treatment whatsoever. And where, when we kind of ran the the safety studies at the time, we we made the decision to actually monitor the animal for two days because some of the effects that we saw in the in the in vitro preparations did not come on until towards the end of the preparation. So that kind of made us and the team kind of say, we're not going to just do a single kind of six hour study. We're not going to do a one day study. We're going to follow the animals out, give a single dose and follow them for two days. Um, When we did that, we saw that the ECG changes did not start initially um, after the animal was dosed or not after three hours, not after six hours, after which you would be expected to take another medicine. If you're taking paracetamol, you would take another dose of the medicine, correct? Whereas in this case, the effect was actually seen on the on the electrocardiogram or the ECG was actually seen at almost close to 36 hours after the drug was taken. And we kind of wondered why this was the case. And where it all came together was really the part where you almost have to understand what the drug was doing. And then we actually went and looked at where the drug was binding. And it was actually binding to some of the of the ion channels, which was regulating cardiac activity. 
So therefore, because the ion channels kind of kind of re, uh, they almost recycle very very quickly. Um, it was actually affecting the newly formed ion channels, which were in coming back to the membrane, and therefore the effect was starting. So therefore, that led to a refinement of the next study that we did, which was when we gave the animals, it kept going up. And if we did a seven-day study, the ECG changes went back up, and it took seven days for the for the ECG changes to come back. So if you gave a second dose, you could have almost killed the animal uh, that you would have done. So that led to a refinement in the human dosing approach for the cancer study where we decided that it was not so much about the efficacy that was going to dictate what the dose was going to be because the efficacy was there. It was really, really good. It was, and it was only required for one dose. But we said we need to follow the patients out for seven days after you give the first dose and you only give the dose weekly. And I'm happy to say that that type of, that category of molecules, which is one of the first category of molecules, will actually be approved or it's in late stage clinical trials and it's doing really well across various companies. This is not only one company. So that basically yeah. goes to show that you can almost influence or you could have killed a molecule that could really help patients um, very early if you did not understand, or you could have actually taken a drug and you could have only decided after you're sunk in millions of dollars into development at a later point of time, by which time it's too late or somebody would have made the decision to kill the molecule. If you do a more systematic study, you can actually unpick where these effects come on. And that's a degree of diligence that most companies actually do. And all of the work uh, or the knowledge, et cetera, that comes from such type of assays. I think Dr. Hamlin has been a very important contributor to that line of thinking uh, in the area. So I just want to kind of say that and kind of pay tribute to kind of how you have kind of enabled me to think of a problem and think forward and think back and go forward and backwards yeah. all the time, uh, Dr. Hamlin. So I think I think that that is a true life example that I can actually give the audience and to you as well, because I don't think I've ever mentioned this to you. That's very exciting. So that shows thinking out of the box. Very, very, very nice. Very nice. I I think with all of this discussion of killing molecules, I'm going to develop a new area of, of criminal law called molecule-aside. Yeah. And we can charge people as we see fit. We, I, but, unfortunately, we don't, we don't know. Uh, we know <clears throat> if a drug will kill a person or kill, kill a subject, but we don't know if denying them a drug won't be worse. And that's it's very, very difficult. You know, we, we're pretty good at sensitivity, determining if a molecule is bad, but we're not so good at determining specificity. That is, uh, because we, we, the, 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 if the molecule looks bad, it, doesn't, it never gets into the patient. And you don't know how many people die because they were denied the molecule. We actually, and we actually were able to capture a great story on that about the, the standard of care and heart failure and and um, during one of the clinical trials, the FDA has stepped in and said, actually, you, it's it's wrong to deny patients this new opportunity because it's saving lives. And it was so demonstrable; it happened just like and that. And Dr. Hamlin it's, knows Bob Ruffalo really well, and this is what we're talking about yeah. Arvada Law. Very well, very, 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 very good. Yeah, and also he also knows Bob Ruffalo's yeah. 
um, mentor as well, Dr. Popat Patel, who's a who's a good friend of of Dr. Hamlin as well, uh, because both of them are right across the river from each other at the university. Just one of the most brilliant pharmacologists, wonderful person, thoughtful person, thinking person you'll ever know, Popat Patel. Wonderful. At this point, we are going to take a short pause. If you're enjoying the chat with Dr. Hamlin, you're surely going to enjoy what's to come now. As you just heard, Dr. Hamlin's influence in the field of safety pharmacology extends beyond just me. You heard of me sharing my own personal reflections, an example of how Dr. Hamlin's teaching came together in my professional life at GlaxoSmithKline. I have now invited three guests who have graciously agreed to give their version of how Dr. Hamlin has been impactful in the field of safety pharmacology. We'll first hear from Dr. Hugo Vargas, who is at Amgen, Dr. Bruce Morimoto, who is at Saracen, and another Ohio State alum with whom I've actually crossed paths with and worked in the lab together, Carlos Del Rio, who is now at Myocardia, a BMS company. Let's listen to what they have to say about Dr. Hamlin. Hello, this is Carlos Del Rio, Head of Translational Research at Myocardia, now a subsidiary of BMS, and I profess Hamlinism for life. I had the honor of meeting Bob Hamlin, to me, always Dr. Hamlin, with pause and reverence, first during graduate school at Ohio State. He was a professor that in the era of pattern recognition software made ECG analysis engaging by touting a bold pen step as an indispensable tool, but also a mythical research figure that everyone in cardiovascular research spoke of in awe. I later had the pleasure of sharing a desk with him for 12 years at his CRO, Hutes Labs. During this time, I learned that his mythical aura was not only deserved, but insufficient to capture the meaning of a scientist that spoke of a spider's hearts and diastolic suction when HPEF was only a sound you make when coughing, that talk about vascular stiffness and hypertension as records of arterial pressure waveforms collected with photosensitive paper balancing mirrors of light hang around his table, our table, or discuss contractility, rowers, and myosin heads as books dedicated by car wiggers serve as paperweights. He is the scientist and human that I know I will never be but that I aspire to be. A scientist that always chooses to listen instead of talking. A teacher that is patient and waits as we try to tell him how to find the coronary sinus in the fluoroscope, even though he has been pointing at it for 30 minutes. A pharmacologist that reminds you that we don't develop drugs to treat healthy people and that safety and pathophysiology are intertwined or a manager that knows that we must serve regulators and investors, but also, more importantly, our conscience. These are some of the teachings of the Hanlinism, and I do encourage you to listen to them. You will be a better scientist and person, your company will be better, and ultimately, your patients will get the right medicine because of them. Hi, my name is Hugo Vargas. I am an executive director in a translational safety and bioanalytical sciences group at Amgen Incorporated. 
I oversee a safety pharmacology lab group, and my primary role is to evaluate new drug candidates for their cardiovascular safety profile before they are, are administered to human beings for the first time in phase one clinical trials. I work with all types of new chemicals and biological therapeutics all the time. So I'm actually making it to clinical development, and that's really exciting. However, many agents do not make it, especially if they have toxic effects. My interests in cardiovascular pharmacology and safety testing led me to cross paths with Dr. Hamlin. In the early 2000s, I got to know Dr. Hamlin directly through his publications in the scientific literature and hearing him speak about drug-induced cardiac arrhythmia and other safety concerns at various scientific conferences around the globe. I had the pleasure of working directly with Dr. Hamlin starting in 2008. I partnered with him and his scientific colleagues to evaluate the cardiotoxicity of some novel anti-cancer therapeutics we were developing at the time. These agents were very effective at reducing tumor burden in mouse models, which was really awesome. However, the agents caused severe and sustained drops in blood pressure and cardiac output in dogs, which was a major concern for us. Dr. Hamlin was a consultant on this project, and he helped me figure out that the drug had profound negative effects on venous return to the heart, actually, and it was not a direct cardiomyocytoxin. His insight was really helpful in connecting the dots and figuring out the unusual mechanism of hypotension. His feedback was really quite helpful uh, as well uh, in optimizing our cardiovascular safety testing. Unfortunately, after a few more months of evaluating new chemicals, we could not mitigate this vascular toxicity and needed to take a decision to deprioritize this program. I still see Dr. Hamlin at meetings and always enjoy my conversations with him. To this day, I am impressed with Dr. Hamlin's enthusiasm for cardiovascular science, knowledge of animal models, his ability to tell a story, offer great ideas, and his overall passion to help other scientists. After talking with Dr. Hamlin, you always feel a little smarter, which is his great gift to all of us. My name is Bruce Morimoto, and I am currently the Vice President for Drug Development at Saracen. It is an honor and privilege to say a few words about Professor Bob Hamlin. I first met Bob some 20 years ago at the annual Safety Pharmacology Society meeting and on a yearly basis, look forward to seeing him at this meeting. Bob is a wealth of information in all facets of cardiovascular biology and physiology. What differentiates Bob from all others is his generosity. He is never too busy to answer the simplest of question or share his insights on integrated physiology. I have personally grown and benefited from knowing Bob. He is truly a gentleman scholar. That's awesome. I'm going to put you on the spot. And, and I'm not a scientist, or an, nor am I an engineer, but I can pick things up pretty quickly. So would you walk me through the seat of the pants method for determining heart rate? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, first of all, heart rate is a vital sign. It's the most vital of all signs. Uh, extremely important. Uh, and a very little change in heart rate can translate to an enormous uh, 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 change in, in lifestyle or, or life, duration of life. And so uh, 
you have to be very, very cautious to measure it. Uh, and there are really not very good criteria for determining how to measure it. For example, uh, Dr. Room pointed out there are about 100,000 heartbeats in a day. Okay. Uh, and of, of those heartbeats, and if, uh, most of them occur uh, uh, when you're awake because you're, you're awake and some occur when you're sleeping. So your heart rate may vary from 50 at night to 120 when you're, when you're awake. And yet they average out as being 110,000 a day. So the question is, when, sh when you write down the heart rate in the clinic, should you write down the heart rate taken at night, taken during the daytime, or take averaged over the whole 24 hours? We don't know. And the, there are many, many subtleties in taking heart rate that are, that are exquisite, I believe, exquisitely important. And we're doing studies right now to try to, try to find out uh, uh, which heart rate is important. For example, let me give an example about blood pressure. Uh, you know that the rule for taking blood pressure is you sit in a chair like this, both legs on the floor for five or 10 minutes, and somebody takes your blood pressure, assuming that they take it correctly. And your blood pressure is, say, 120 over 80. And had they taken your blood pressure or to your heart rate, the minute you sat down on the chair, it might have been 140 over 85 which is, you know, now considered abnormal. And you say, well, that's, forget that one. We want to take it when you're at rest. But, you know, that may be the one that kills you. And, and we disregard it. So I ask my hypertension friends uh, and my other cardiology friends, I say, which heart rate and which blood pressure determine outcome? And there's no answer people who know they don't know what the best is they know that if it's high or low that's outcome but they don't know when it should be taken so the issue is about if you're if your blood pressure is high because you're excited when they take it i mean that means your blood pressure is high and if it's high that time you could have a stroke because the pressure is high so why should that be neglected just because it wasn't taken when you're sitting on a chair with both feet on the ground, resting for so, five minutes. Uh, tell us about the seat of the pants method for measuring heart rate from the ECG then. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Okay, from an electrocardiogram. If you see an electrocardiogram, it has little P waves, QRS complexes, and T waves. Every time there's a P wave, the atria are shocked to contract. QRS is the ventricles. So you count the number of P waves or QRS complexes uh, for... 15 seconds or for 30 seconds or for one minute. And that takes time. So if you look at what Dr. Uh, Rune has in his left hand, you see he has a pen. Could you hold it up, please? That pen is, your pen is probably 1,500 millimeters long. Okay? All, almost all are. Otherwise, they're not comfortable. And 1,500 millimeters is about six seconds of time in the electrocardiogram. So if you measure the heartbeats that occur in the length of a pen, of a 50 millimeter pen, multiplied by 10, that's your heart rate. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. 
And if it's even I can do it. Very simple. Very simple. A very sensitive instrument, a big pen. All right, so I'm I'm going to go with a question Rune kind of spoon fed me, and so you're going to have to roll with it if I if I mispronounce things. But could you go through sort of the the tropey of heart, whether it's lucitropy, sure. dromotropy, bathotropy? I love that. Let's go learn, learn those from Wiggers, but he didn't have them all because some of them weren't invented yet. The ability of the heart to discharge spontaneously determine your heart rate is called chronotropy, chronotime. The ability of the impulse, once it's discharged from the SA node, to travel through the atria, through the AV node, through the ventricle, is determined by the velocity of conduction. That's called dromotropy. The ability of the heart to get irritated and discharge abnormally is called bathmetropy. Those are electrophysiological properties of the heart. Then there's the ability of the heart to contract. That's called inotropy. And those were the properties when we were young. Now there's a new one called, called, called lucitropy. That's the ability of the heart to relax, to fill. And remember, about 50% of death from heart failure are caused by abnormal lucitropy, inability to fill normally, not inability to contract normally so there's the, 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 those are properties and now there's one more property uh, sorry two more properties one is called uh, myocardial oxygen demand mv.o2 uh, it's determined by heart rate contractility and tension in the wall that's another property that's very important and another property is called ventricular vascular coupling that is how the ventricle and the arterial system interact so that it optimizes, makes most efficient the ejection of blood. So these are all properties. But the first classical ones, uh, which were popularized by Wiggers, inotropy, dromotropy, bathmetropy, uh, and chronotropy, those four. Then a fellow named Arnold Katz, uh, whose wife, was a Greek scholar, uh, coined the term lucitropy, because lucitropy in Greek somehow has to do with filling. And uh, then, then ventricular vascular coupling came from uh, modern engineers. Super interesting. Leave it to the engineers to pick a, a, a less than appealing name. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Hamlin, I have the most dumb question to you. But it's not dumb because it comes from my daughter and she's not here to ask you because she's in the she, she's actually schooling uh, in the next room uh, behind me uh, as we are recording it. I was actually she at some point of time, um, me being a nerdy father, I was kind of telling her about ECG. And I just said, look, you have all these waves that, that your heart produces. And she listened to everything for like 10 minutes. And she asked the most stupidest question, which, or rather, I felt stupid because I could not answer the question. She went, why the hell would you actually start with a first wave of ECG as P and not A? He said, who did they actually forget the rest of the letters? Why did they actually go P, Q, R, S, T and not A, B, C, D, E? 
the origin of that is actually very interesting. Uh, one of the origins I like is that people saw deflections. They saw heart sounds too. And uh, they said, well, maybe there'll be, maybe, maybe there'll be more deflections or fewer deflections. So if we start out with the middle of the alphabet, P, then you got PQRST, you got all the way to go, both before and after that. So there's a, a lot of that, a lot of place. Uh, and so they say they named them because they they didn't know how many were going to come after that. So they figured if they picked the middle of the alphabet, it would be nice. Uh, then uh, originally they were called A and B. And, uh, and so nobody really knows for sure how it is. But, uh, but uh, it's very interesting that P is nice because it's in the middle of the alphabet and you've got a long way to go. So the P then a Q, then an R, then an S, then a T, then a U. And that's all we know. That's all we use now. But uh, there may be something else coming. In. That is, I could definitely go tell her that for sure. Um, and I'm sure she'll be happy. Um, then one other thing that I wanted to check that we I kind of hit on in my introduction, but we haven't had a chance to pick on until now, is you're probably recorded ECGs of probably every mammal or or every animal that is that lives on land uh, or has had some relation to the land, except for the woolly mammoth, right? So t- tell us about that journey of recording from a shrew sure, to a whale, sure. uh, Hamlet. Sure. Sure. Well, the shrew is the smallest animal. A pygmy shrew is five grams. Uh, a a whale. Some whales are huge. Elephants are four thousand, eight thousand kilograms. Enormous differences, and uh, because of the ratio of the surface area to the to the to the volume of the animal, uh, the the smaller animal irradiates calories very efficiently and so it has to have a real high heart rate for its metabolic activity and a woolly mammoth huge animal just can have a very very low heart rate so that's one thing that's not right it's right but that's not the real reason a shrew has such a high meta well first of all i the first shrew i on whose electrocardiogram whose electrocardiogram i ran uh was given to given to me by one of my technicians uh she brought me uh two shrews and two quart bottles of cockroaches and i said thanks for the shrews but why the cockroaches because a cockroach is so small its metabolic activity is so fast that it has to eat literally 24 hours a day. And that's one shrew will eat a quart of cockroaches in a day. Okay, so can there be an animal smaller than a shrew with a higher heart rate? No, because they're only 24 hours a day. So now what about a, why don't we see woolly mammoths? Why don't we see 
and we will see, we so, soon won't see elephants. They have uh, metabolic activity that's not high, but their mass is so great that they need a lot of calories. And how they get their calories is by walking these great distances. An elephant will graze over acres to get enough calories. And if it were any bigger, it would need so many calories, it would have to graze over such a big area that it would consume more calories grazing than it would to serve its metabolic activity. So there can never be an animal that will survive smaller than a shrew or larger than an elephant. Now, the reason there are mammoths who are bigger than elephants, you say, well, that disproves you. Wrong. It proves it because they don't exist. So there'll never be, there can never be a mammal smaller than a shrew or bigger than an elephant that will survive. Dr. Hamlin, this book, we've been kind of asking you to publish the book of the weird and wonderful of of electrocardiogram. I don't know. It's 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 been it's been close to twenty years since I left Ohio State, and I think we need to kind of do something about that. And 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 Absolutely. I'm actually going to make sure that I do something about it uh, once this whole COVID times end. And, and, and one thing we should we should we should discuss is what is the difference between a shrew and an elephant? Apart from size. They, apart from size, do you know that the only, let's talk about the red blood cells. We and an elephant and a shrew have 6 million red blood cells per, cu per cubic millimeter of blood, and they're all the same size. The shrew has the same size red blood cell as an elephant. The elephant just has more of them. The number of Heart cells, okay? The heart cells of a shrew and an elephant are almost identical. What's the difference? The elephant has more of them. So it's very, very interesting how some things uh, are the same in a shrew and an elephant, but others are vastly different, namely their, their size. And why they are, remember, it, whatever exists suits them to survive in a given lifestyle. Yeah. Very these are things that we that would I, No, I it it sure is fascinating. And I think I think we can just go on and on about this and and you know me. I I, I can definitely go on and on. In fact, I I actually went on for years with you uh Dr. Hamlin and I think there there should be a chance for us to do that more. Uh but yeah, and, and I think so would I. Um, thank you so much for actually taking the time to talk to us. I'm pretty sure compared to the usual kind of uh, we did this or, or this particular discovery, I really hope that people were able to appreciate the, the wealth and the breadth of information that they've been able to kind of encounter. And uh, yeah, I mean, hats off to you. And I just feel fortunate just to know you, Dr. Hamlin, and, and that will always be there. Uh, and we will talk soon. You're, you're, you and Jojo are both very kind. Thanks. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. Stay well and stay safe. Stay safe. I really want to give a shout out to the um, Contract Research Organization 
that Dr. Hamlin uh, has established. It's called Q-Test Labs. It's Q, capital Q, test, T-E-S-T, labs. It's located in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, they are a fantastic group of scientists who actually do some amazingly complicated um, work. Uh, for many different pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies. So if you need to get in touch with them, please reach out to Dr. Hamlin at rhamlin at qtestlabs.com or his son and CEO of Qtest Labs, David Hamlin. His email is dhamlin at qtestlabs.com. The clips are officially owned and is a property of scraps a brand jointly owned by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Blatt. No reproduction of content should be undertaken without the permission. Sainthan Chandran was the editor and our soundtrack was by Acetad. And we'll be back soon with another installment of Scraps, which is just Sparks, spelled backwards. It really is that simple to remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah.